you are not a Christian, that, you know, you can make this a Good Friday for you. And today we are going to start just a, a two-day um, series, the start today and finishing on Sunday. Today is all about the cross. Today is all about the cross. And the title is um, Life from Death. This is part one. Rich T, Pastor Rich, will share on Sunday part two. And I hope I've got his instructions correct. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he'll be able to follow on. If not, he'll be rewriting his sermon tonight or tomorrow um, to, to compensate for that. Um, and, and the title is um, Facing the Inevitability of Death. Facing the Inevitability of Death. And today we're going to look at John 12 and we're going to look at verses 20 to 26. So let me just give you a quick introduction and then we'll pray and get into today's message. So, it is said that you have to crack an egg in order to make an omelette. For those of us who love omelettes, or any other egg dish for that matter, this is good news. But what about those who love their eggs in shell? As we, as we look at our text, it seems clear that Jesus sees death, even his own, as something that is not only inevitable, but is necessary for good to be accomplished. So let's, let me quickly pray, and then we'll read today's text. And that will be John 12, 20 to 26. Lord, we give you thanks for this day, Lord. We celebrate the cross today, Lord. We commit ourselves before you today, Lord, that your hand be upon us. Lord, that you speak to us, Lord, that you penetrate us. Those that are not in tune with you, Lord, that do not line up to your teachings, Lord, that reject the message. Lord, if, if any of them are listening today, Lord, that you would touch them, Lord, as we remember the cross and what our Savior went through on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts open to receive and to contemplate and to meditate and to fix our minds on what you've actually done for us, Lord. So I commit today before you in my teaching, pray for your help and your guidance, pray the Spirit would lead me into your truths as I share your word, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So John 12, 20 to 26. Among those, starting at verse 20, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So let's look at verse 20. So among these who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Greeks, Gentiles, we don't know their names. We don't know how many of them there were. We don't know much about them except they've heard of Jesus. Maybe it was because of his message, his messages, his mercy and his ministry. Maybe the miracles. Remember, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. They had come up to the Passover feast. What were they doing there? Had they come to worship? Well, verse 21 tells us. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It seems as though these Greeks had done their homework. They didn't approach Jesus directly in case of rejection. These Greeks knew that Jews normally had no association with Gentiles. So they approached Philip. Why Philip? Why not one of the other disciples? Well, Philip had a Greek name, as did Andrew, and so possibly spent some time in the Greek-speaking province. They had probably heard that Jesus was different, so they might be willing, so he might be willing to meet them. Notice their humility. They had a real humility about them. Sir, we wish to, Je we wish to see Jesus. As we celebrate Easter Friday, let's remind ourselves of the most beautiful expression and ultimate act of humility from Hebrews 12, 12, 12 2. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know that we wish to see Jesus is engraved behind many a pulpit. It serves as a reminder to the speaker that the listeners need to see Jesus through their preaching. The preacher has a special responsibility to do this. But this is also true of all followers of Jesus. You don't get off the hook because you're not a preacher. People need to see Jesus. Our believing friends and colleagues, they wish to see Jesus. Our unsaved family members, do they see him in our lives? Is what we claim to be true? They want to know if we are the real deal. If we practice what we preach, or do we just talk the talk? Do they see a forgiving spirit within me? A person that doesn't backbite. Someone who's not judgmental or a gossip. Someone who has integrity. 
someone who doesn't hold on to wrongs? Do they experience the love of God when they spend time with us? The Holy Spirit is at work within us. Sorry. Is the Holy Spirit at work within us? Or has it been suppressed? You say, what do you mean? Suppressing the Holy Spirit. Well, here's a very poor analogy, but it was the only one I could think of. It's the example of a smoke detector. Imagine every morning you cook breakfast. You get up, you put on some eggs and bacon, and you burn them. You activate the smoke detector, which makes a deafening sound. You see, over a course of time, if the smoke detector keeps on getting activated, the batteries will slowly start to drain until there comes a point where it no longer sounds a warning. And this can lead to disastrous consequences. It's what happens to our conscience if we continually suppress it. First Timothy 4 says it becomes seared. You see, this generation is much, is, is much different to mine. Men no longer have to sneak into shops to pick up their favorite mags from the top shelf or hide VHS video cassettes. We live in a dangerous, a dangerous age when it comes to temptation. You see, every kind of sin that lures us is on hand. Social media, the things that people will do to get more followers. You see, we're only ever one click away from a darkened soul, a grieved spirit, or our testimony in tatters. In Matthew 6:41, Jesus tells us to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but our flesh is weak. We need, we need that Christ-like love in our relationships. It needs to be seen in our communications with our wives, with your husbands, with each other. Do we ever sense the Holy Spirit whispering in our ear? Sir, I wish to see Jesus. You see, we all have weaknesses, areas that can succumb to temptation. Our weaknesses should force us to our knees in prayer. We need boundaries to protect us, to protect our marriages, our families, our ministries. We may need accountability, an accountability partner. We need Christians around us that care enough to be honest with us. Do we have people like that in our lives? Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So let's move on. Let's look at verse 22 of our text. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Every time we see Andrew in the Gospels, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Simon Peter, the boy with the five loaves and two fish, and these Greeks. You see, spiritual seekers need Philip's and Andrew's of this world. Someone willing to introduce them to Jesus. 
You may be a Christian because a Philip or an Andrew introduced you to Jesus. Who knows who Mordecai Ham is? I know you're not going to answer me, but yeah, Brother Andrew does. So he's, he, he, he's a person that, that led Billy Graham to Jesus. He was that Philip or that Andrew. And Billy Graham went on to lead thousands to Christ. You see, there are multitudes of hurting people out there who need to see Jesus. For most of them, we are the closest they will ever get to God. Dio Moody said this, Out of a hundred men, one will read the Bible and the other 99 will read the Christian. So this announcement that the Greeks were seeking him triggers Jesus' speech in this section. Whether or not the wish of those Jews wanting to see Jesus was granted, we're not told. It would appear that these Greeks who were looking for an audience with the Messiah triggers Jesus' death course. If Jesus is going to see their inclusion, Gentiles and Jews, into the kingdom of God, then his death is necessarily necessary in order to accomplish that good. Verse 23 tells us, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He proclaims his impending death as a time of his glory. When we think of, of, about glorification, would we associate it with, the word, with words like glory and death? We probably think of someone being magnified, honored and exalted. We think of the words like conquering. We think of power and strength. We think of our superheroes like Iron Man. It's the only one I could think of. Um, is this glorification, is this the glorification that Jesus is talking about here? No. It's not the glorification by the world standards. His response is astonishing. Jesus is speaking about the reason why he came to the earth, which was to die for the sins of mankind, to stand in our place. Interestingly, interestingly, on several other occasions in this gospel, we hear Jesus say, my hour has not come yet. Again, there is something about the request of these Greeks that caused Jesus to realize the hour of his suffering and death was near. Jesus understood the timing of God's plan for redemption, and he knew that it would cost him. He knows that his death, sorry, he knows that his path to glory is going to be marked with pain and sorrow and death. Jesus wasn't an unwilling victim in, victim in this plan. He was willing to lay his life down, even die a horrifying death. You see, crucifixion is by no means a glorious death by Roman standards. So Jesus cannot be talking about his humiliating execution as something that is good in itself. Rather, is what, rather it is what this death will accomplish that will be of great benefit to many and thus become his glorious achievement. 
Some of you may be thinking, why is there so much emphasis on words like death, sorrow, and suffering? Because we need to set aside the world's concept of what Good Friday is about. Easter eggs, Easter bunnies. Let's remember what the sinless, innocent, perfect, spotless Lamb of God went through on our behalf. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, knowing that the time of his death was near, suffered great mental anguish. And as described by the physician Luke, sweated great drops of blood. You know, doctors say there is a point where a person is so stressed, going through so much, that they can actually, their blood pressure goes so high that they can actually sweat drops of blood. You see, we're not talking about death by lethal injection. One, one zap and you're gone. Or death that preserves dignity. See, it was quite the opposite. It was, let's make it painful. Let's make it undignified and humiliating. Let's make sure that every nail hurts. The guards blindfolded him, mocked him, spat upon him, taunted him to identify them as they passed by and struck him. They plucked his beard. How about the scourging? You see, scourging was an extremely painful torture inflicted by a whip that had leather cords with bits of sheep bone and pieces of metal embedded. This device was designed to inflict maximum pain and blood loss. Every lash would rip out large pieces of flesh, exposing the skeletal muscles. His hands Tied to a post, Jesus endured horrific pain at the hands of the Roman soldiers as the crowd of onlookers watched. You know, I'm sorry if that sounds gruesome, but it was. You see, this Easter we need to remember and get a picture of what our Savior went through. Which is why it's good to remind ourselves of these things. You see, he experienced God's wrath that is owed to us when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why did the perfect Son of God suffer like this? Physically, emotionally, psychologically and spiritually. Why was he forsaken? One word. Sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree 
You see, one of the most sobering realities that every person must face is the certainty of death. Ten out of ten people die. Someone said, there's two things you can't escape, death and taxes. We cannot hide, escape, or run from it. You see, death is not the end for the, for the believer or for the unbeliever. Although some may reject that. For those of us in Christ, death is no doomsday, but merely a gateway to a glorious eternal life. We know that Jesus had paid our penalty for sin. Let's remind ourselves of the beautiful hope we have in Jesus. <clears throat> Sorry. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven and from which we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us to wrath, amen, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through any other religious person that we can think of. Who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You see, if you are listening and you haven't surrendered your life to the Savior, there will be no glorious gateway. There will be no eternal life waiting for you. But only judgment and condemnation and the full wrath of God. Because of sin, you are separated from God. Classic verse that we always quote, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Emphasis on the word all. The bus driver, the bus conductor, the man in the shop, the man walking around the streets, the, the politician, the government, the, the queen, whoever. All have sinned. Mother Teresa, the Pope. All have sinned. The priest, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, God is holy and we don't measure up to his perfect standard. We are sinful. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Payment. You go to work. You do a month's work. At the end of the month, you get your payment. You get your wages for the work you've done. Well, the Bible says there are wages for sin. And that's death. Eternal separation from God. You see, God love, God's love bridges the gap of separation between you and him. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he paid the penalty in full for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds 
you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what should your response be? Simple things. Receive Christ. Cross the bridge into God's family by accepting Christ's free gift of salvation. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't do good deeds to earn it. There is nothing you can do. It's a free gift. And God offers it to you. John 1.12 says, But as to many as received him, he gave, he gave them, sorry, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Receive him. Receive him. And become a child of God. So what do you need to do? Well, it really starts here. Humble yourself. One of the things that causes people to reject the Savior is pride. Pride. Admit that you're a sinner. Hold your hands up. I have two hands in the air. I'm a sinner. Ask for forgiveness. Be willing to turn away from sin. Believe that Christ died for you on the cross. Receive Christ into your heart and life. You see, Romans 10, 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we're not talking about Say this little prayer and it's all good. It's not treating Jesus as just an add-on to complement your life. We're talking complete submission of your will to him as Lord and Savior. Are you ready to do that? Or is pride still sitting there? Has pride got dominion over you? Okay, let's look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul appears to make use of a similar illustration in 1 Corinthians 15, 36 to 37. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare carnal, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. You see, Jesus and Paul draw from, from nature to, to, use illustrate, to use illustrations to prove their point or to make their point. You see, the comparison is a powerful one because it contrasts a seed with its potential in beauty and enrichment or even nourishment. The blandness of a seed is incomparable to what it could be if it just died. You see, as Christians, we're happy for, for Jesus to do all the dying. But we struggle with the part 
that calls us, calls us to die. Paul said it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There is no shortcut. We will not bear fruit if we're not willing to die to self. We all know those areas in our lives where we need to die. The aim is to be the seed that is planted, that dies, that goes on to, to become a beautiful flower like, I looked this up before I put this together, a, a, a water lily. I mean, I looked at a water lily, it's just so beautiful. A tulip, a lotus, or a rose. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is an interesting statement by Jesus. He says that in order for us to find our life, we have to lose it. The Bible has these paradoxes. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may, may prove to be well-founded or true. Here are some Bible par paradoxes. When we are weak, we're strong. The first will be last and the last will be first. Though you die, yet you shall live. The poor are rich, and the rich are poor. Exaltation is gained through humili humili humility. I nearly said humiliation. <laughs> humility, well, maybe. <laughs> uh, we become wise by becoming fools for Christ's sake. Now, verse 25 doesn't mean that you have to hate yourself. Don't get it twisted. Don't be hating on yourself and start, well, doing whatever you do to yourself when you hate yourself. Um, it, means that you, it means you must recognize that living for yourself will never supply what you really want out of life. How these words of Jesus cut across the philosophy of life today. TV programs, magazines, every popular song, all present the view that your life is your own. Live the way you please. As long as you're happy, hey, watch out for number one. Whatever you want to be, be it. Whoever you want to be, be that person. After all, you only live once. The world's philosophy. Jesus declares that if you follow that way of thinking, you will lose everything. Life will slip through your fingers. Imagine if you could gain all the material goods that you could ever wish for. The applause of the crowd, fame and fortune, celebrity status. You see, if you live that way, you would end up with nothing. 
your life would have been pointless. How do we know that? Mark 8, 36. For what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? Wow. That's a sobering verse. You think of all the rich people, people with billion, billionaires with yachts and everything they could ever wish for. Money is no object. Losing, lose, people losing their jobs is no object to them. They have gain and wealth and everything. And they end up losing their soul. What a tragedy. So those who choose... So those who choose to hold on to what they have already are like those clutching onto seeds. And those who let go of life are like those who unleash their potential and they flourish. So what's the result? What's the end result? Jesus tells us in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus brings this illustration home by likening, likening those who let go of their life as those who follow him and suffer as he does. For many people, death is a horrible thing to contemplate. It can put fear into the heart and mind and often causes the soul to tremble. But as servants, as followers of, of, as followers of Christ, we, look, we can look to this verse and see how it brings good and positive things. We will be where Christ is, in heaven. And the end of this verse is mind-blowing. If Jesus hadn't said it, we probably wouldn't believe it. <clears throat> it says that we will receive all honor from the father first corinthians 2 9 says but as it is written what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor entered the heart of sorry nor the heart of man imagined what god has prepared for those who love him so application feet are going numb It may not be obvious, but the, the implication of being born again implies putting the current life to death. A new life can only be taken up in the wake of the old <coughs> sorry, in the wake of the old one. The invitation of Jesus is to let go of seeds in order to come into life with him. Are you happy clutching onto eggshells? under the belief that the little something I have is better than risking it on something that I'm not sure of. In this sense, death, giving yourself over to Christ, is not a tragedy that one ought to avoid, but is to be embraced. The glory of Christ's death is a model for all who follow him. Many actually lost their lives in times of persecution, but that was only possible because their lives were already given up to Christ. 
As we look to Christ's death this Easter, may we also see the glory of his death in the life we have in him today and also into the eternal kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the cross and what it means to us. As your word says, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for a friend. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose to become our friend and to lay down your life for us and to go through excruciating circumstances on our behalf. Let us remember today. Let us remember the cross. Let us fix our minds on that. Let us remember what you went through on our behalf. Let us remember the nails, the beatings, the torture, the humiliation. Thank you, Lord, for your grace upon our lives. We pray as we remember this Easter weekend, Lord, that our eyes will be firmly fixed on you and your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.